Hi, how's it going? Follow that, huh? Gee whiz. And evidently I was here a few years ago. Anybody, anybody here when I talked here? Uh, crud, I got to change everything. Doggone it, the four of you. I have learned zero in the last five years, so that's what will be really fun is to make sure you know that I don't have a lot of content. So I'm just going to tell stories. I hope that's okay. That's actually a lie. I'm going to give you tons of content. I don't have a single story. Thanks. Bummer. Uh, uh, Chris and Heather. It's mostly Heather we fell in love with. And it literally was one of the worst messages I've ever given in my whole life with those thousands of kids. They hated me. And I'm, te- I'm jokingly telling that story at a seminary deal. And Chris goes, that was when I met Christ. That was you. And I knew the guy's attractive, but that's all I remember about him. And not all that dang funny, sir. I'm totally with you. And I got a PhD in communications, and I read body language. So. Uh, let me also tell you that. You know, it's funny. I was a Young Life guy for uh, 15 years in California and Colorado. And through a whole lot of different reasons, uh, I ended up going to Denver Seminary and, and beginning the, the youth and family ministry program there. I had an MA and an MDiv while I was on Young Life staff. Uh, and I had written a little bit and I had spoken a little bit, but I got this job to run this MA and youth ministry program. It was going great, been into it about six months, and the dean calls me in, and he said, have you started your doctorate yet? And I go, uh, what are you talking about? The program's going great, we've got a lot of new students, it's very fun, we're having a great time, teaching them all the master's level stuff you need to know in youth ministry. You know, egg and armpit relays, how to play kumbaya on four keys, how to actually do youth ministry without ever having to meet a parent, all the most important things you need in order to survive. And he goes, well, in the interview, you know, you said, you agreed that you would get a Ph.D. because that's, we're a master's school, and to teach master's and doctor of ministry, you need a Ph.D. And I go, come on. You know, Ph.D., seriously, I teach youth ministry. This is, that was the interview. That's like dating. You know, we're married now. It doesn't make any difference at all. You're stuck with me. And he goes, actually, we're not. Uh, you got a one-year contract. If you don't start by the end of this year, you're done. Ooh, that motivated me. And so I did what I, typical of me, I decided to get mad and drive down to the near school that evidently had a PhD. I had heard about the University of Denver because they had a great hockey team. So I drove down there and I found this sign that said, Office of Graduate Studies, and I parked, walked in, and she says, can I help you? And I said, yes, ma'am, I, I, uh, I need a PhD. <laughs> kind of like you go to Walmart, you know, fishing line, low-fat milk. And she said, in what? I literally said to her, I, I don't know. They didn't tell me. They didn't say anything about in what. I just, I don't, it doesn't matter. What do you got? Is what I said. Which was even worse when she said, what you major in in college? I got, I got some master's in theology. Well, we don't do that. I, I, I get that. So to major in college. And I went to the, uh, the Stanford of the South. Uh, UC San Diego, the Mighty Tritons. Perhaps you've heard of them in La Jolla. We won the Women's Division Three Badminton Championship in 1975. This is a powerhouse. I lived on the beach in Del Mar, California, and surfed every single day for four years, played guitar in a band and a young life in church, and so I never went to class, ever. And I got a 3.4. I was a communication major. Right? Any of you communication majors? Okay, there you go. That's why if your kid goes, I'm a communication major, you know, okay, what else are you doing? Drugs on the side, what do you... And so I told her that, and she goes, oh, we had this incredible department. Why I'm even telling you that story is because um, this will kind of set up everything else I'm going to do, is they let me in, 
and my life was absolutely rocked. I didn't have a high view of education for me. I was more a practitioner, pragmatist, and I did have master, two masters in theology, but mostly because I cared about the content of it, not about the academics of it. But man, when I started in this program, here's what happened. They absolutely ruined me. I came from a, um, an IBM family that is a, was a tech family. My dad was the founding officer with another guy of the, uh, the company that invented RAM. And one of the first people to really start Silicon Valley. So he was an IBM guy, which is, by the way, a piece of why I'm here too, is we lived in Kansas City twice. I lived right near Ranch Mart, 95th and Mission. Went to, I forgot the name of that school. That's not a school anymore. It's like the district office on mission. And then we moved and went to several different places. We moved every year until we came back to Kansas City for, for three more years, fifth, sixth, and seventh grade. So I went to Norwood Junior High School. Yay. We lived on right about 104th somewhere, right behind Brookside. Yippee. In that, I, I'm home kind of, as much as I've ever had in my whole life. And uh, so we became incredible Chief fans, totally committed and uh, we had season tickets right in front of Lenny Dawson's, I think his first wife, second? I don't know how many, but nonetheless, one of those wives. Uh, and so I've been a Chief fan all of these years ever since then. So I went, we were here fifth, sixth, and seventh grade, and then moved to Connecticut, and my two worst years were seventh grade. So <clears throat> that's absolutely true, whole other story. And, and so I ended up in this family that had this high energy of commitment to systems, structures, entrepreneurialism, business, strategy, relationships, communication. We all argued about all that. So then I get in this doctoral program, and all of a sudden I learned that everything I had learned in the church and in the seminary land was we own truth as Christians. We have the, we know truth. We have capital T in our truth. And, you know, you guys, as, as people that need Christ, you don't, you don't really, well, I'm in this program for a while, and all of a sudden I realize these people love the pursuit of truth. They just hadn't yet discovered the source of that truth, almost none of them. But what I learned was in the church, we had truth, but there were boundaries to our ability to inquire regarding that truth. There were assumptions and biases we were allowed to hold on to and even sanctify coming out of our Christian culture, our own experience of life. And we, didn't, we weren't allowed to mess with those things. Because you're messing then with personalities and celebrities and book writers and pastors and people that write checks. And I learned at Denver Seminary that not only my natural temperament, but my end up my calling as an academic uh, fit perfectly with this idea that said, you know what, God doesn't, isn't afraid of inquiry. God is not nervous of us asking hard questions about truth. I think God's far more upset with us defining the boundaries of truth more than he is about us searching for it, which has defined my career, is, is what I'm going to share with you tonight. I, I hope you get upset, frankly, some of you. I hope at least one sentence causes you to seek Christ in a deeper way regarding some issue, because we all carry around a, a myriad of biases and assumptions and convictions that may or may not align with what God has in mind for his church, and especially as we're dealing with those precious next generations. We owe it to the next generations to actually finally be the church. Because for a lot of decades, especially in this nation, that's been hard sometimes. So that's kind of my starting point. Now to do that, I'm going to actually pray. 
okay? And I invite you guys to pray with me. If you ever pray in front, let me remind you, never just you pray and let people listen. You pray for everybody, so that's just these little you know, things I'll throw in there along the way. So let's pray together, but I'll be the one yapping, okay? Unless you're charismatic, you feel free to do whatever the heck you do too, okay? Uh, Lord, thank you for each one of these people. Thank you so much for how you touched Chris so many years ago and us getting to be with Heather and Chris in their early years and all ever since. Thanks for the incredible ministry of this church and these several campuses and the healthy leadership and staff and the conviction to serve you and your kingdom. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts, not only be pleasing to you, Lord, but would you shake us up so that we are men and women um, committed to truth, to you, far more than we are to those other convictions and thoughts that we hold so dear. Lord, may your people really live into the truth that we are called to come to you and receive your kingdom as children that there's a freshness and a vitality and a vulnerability and a willingness to explore and hold one another's hand in the process. So may your church be changed in these suburbs of Kansas City and around the world for your sake and your glory. Amen. Okay, that's great. I've had a great time with you. Thanks. We've got more dessert. Uh, just kind of talk about what I've said so far, and we're done. Thank you. Appreciate that. Uh, I did not spill Coke in your car. Quit telling people that story, by the way. I just uh, recently finished a book called 21st Century Youth Ministry, Five Views. The reason I did it was because in, in 2000, there was a book called Four Views of Youth Ministry in the Church that I was asked to be part of, where four different people were assigned a different slice perspective of what it means to do ministry in the church with kids, and uh, we had to sell that particular slice, even if we didn't totally agree with it. Even if we agreed with all the slices, that was the one, man. We had to, we had to go with that one. And ever since, there's been a lot of different philosophies and and kind of expressions of theological conviction that have impacted both children's ministry and youth ministry significantly. How aware you are of these things, I don't know. How deeply aware you want to be of these things. But I, I only bring that up to you to say that uh, this particular book, <clears throat> I was pitching to Baker Academic because I wanted to do two books. One was uh, a 25-author textbook on the style of ministry that I believe the church needs to recapture, especially in the U.S. and Canada. We have such a prominent place in the world. We have by far the most resourced group of humanity that has ever walked the face of the earth. We have more power, more influence than anybody in the world, but we have perhaps the quietest voice in the church around the world. We are not seen as partners in what God's doing around the world. And you know what? This has been now what I'm convicted of, the finishing out kind of my career as, a, as an academic, this particular deal. So what I wanted to do was do this, this textbook called Adoptive Youth Ministry, Integrating Young People into the Life of the Church. That's subtitle, terrible title. But, and so we did this five views, so I cherry-picked four views that I think are kind of skewed and invited the leaders of these views to write the other four views, and I was going to write adoptive, and I told Baker, I I'm going to do this, so everybody goes, ah, adoption, that's the way to go, perfect, and that'll set up the next book, it's perfect, so in August, the first one comes out, and hopefully by October, yay, that's the strategy, I'm just inviting you that I am, yes, a capitalist and a narcissist, all at the same time, so I could have been a senior pastor, I mean, amazing, or a high school football coach, <clears throat> or have gone to Alabama, uh, anyway, 
to start us off on this, whether you're children's ministry or youth ministry, this is a vital central component that I didn't even get really until I started the work in the secular institution at the University of Denver. And that is this. We so easily bifurcate our understanding of spiritual development and how we treat children, middle school, high school, and emerging adults separately and how we understand their own journey from how we think of them in Christ. In other words, especially for those of you doing middle school and high school ministry, maybe even young adult college ministry, it's so easy for us to say the things of Scripture, to repeat the mantras and the, and the bumper stickers that we've repeated over and over of what the gospel is, and go to camp or conference or small group or have Starbucks or whatever, and then tell them that, boy, to be a disciple of Jesus... You need to give your life. Here, let's open up the book of Luke and read. Anyone who wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. Take up my cross daily and follow me. Wow. And that 12-year-old or that 15-year-old or that 20-year-old that just dropped out of school living at home in somebody's basement trying to figure it out while they work at Trader Joe's looks at you and go, I want to be a disciple. i got to die to self, pick up my cross. I'm, yeah, I'm ready to do that verbally. But developmentally, none of those kids have the slightest idea what kind of self they even own, who they are in order to die to that self. We communicate the abstract bumper sticker theology of the gospel without really remembering where these kids are developmentally. And that's a piece of what we're going to talk about. So those of you in children's ministry... I'm going to be lumping you into a general category that I'll be talking about a lot. I want you to push back. I want you to ask questions. We're going to have a great time. Uh, then we're moving into middle school. And then as we get it, for those of you in high school, and try to do the broad stroke of that. But I want to let you know that virtually it's so important for us to realize that an 8-year-old disciple is different than a 12-year-old disciple. is different than 15, a 20, a 26-year-old disciple. Is different than a 40-year-old disciple and a 70-year-old disciple. We let senior adults get away with an attitude and a lifestyle that is the antithesis of their calling in Christ as elders and leaders. We let them get away with a theology of retirement when it comes to how they treat children, young adults, how they engage in the body of Christ. That is just but one example. You guys have given your time and your energy to children and adolescents meeting Jesus. Awesome. But we got to do that in a contextually appropriate way. So that's what we're going to do. And so here's where we're going to start. Real simple, just a, just a primer on this. And I want you to ask questions. Come back, anything you need on this. First, what do all kids need? I, I use, you probably, those, those four of you that were here five years ago probably saw this, is a tightrope to describe the process of moving from childhood into adulthood. Here's why this is, is because virtually the summary of all the research out there on child and adolescent development moving into adulthood is, is, is a process of going from dependency as a child, counting on the family system, not having a reflective ability to understand what that means or is, all they know is what's right in front of them. So you're doing children's ministry, all they know is the people that are leading and guiding them and driving them to church, dropping them off at Sunday school, VBS, whatever it is you do. Then they move into this tightrope of adolescence. The reason it's a tightrope is because the polls is where the communal support is. There is a universality of opinion regarding a child. They are absolutely dependent on the family system for all sense of self. 
once you move out of childhood and you go into this new thing called adolescence, which by definition is the process of becoming a unique person. That's what adolescence is about. In order to get across the tightrope and become interdependent, it, it actually is, it ends up being a choice where I receive and accept the responsibility to insert myself into adulthood. That's what's going on. So when you're leading, or, and tomorrow morning I'm going to be talking to parents. I'm going to do the same kind of stuff with a lot less heaviness at the beginning, a lot more humor. Those of you not laughing yet, some of this stuff's funny. It's been actually tested, not on a Friday night in Kansas City. I totally get that, but, and a Raider weekend, of all things. Uh, but this basic idea will be a little different with parents. But for you guys in ministry, that's what you got to realize is every single kid you're dealing with, whether they're in fourth grade, seventh grade, ninth grade, 23-year-old intern, 23 intern, 27-year-old staff member, 27-year-old young mom or dad, is trying to figure out how do, I, how do I get into this thing called adulthood where I am by definition an interdependent peer, where my word matters, I can be trusted with my com commitments, and I'm part of the adult community. And that's basically the process. There are three different pieces to this. And really what happens is this movement, in order to become interdependent, you've got to become independent. I bet every single one of us can think of people that we know are uh, chronologically adults, but developmentally still stuck somewhere in the middle of the adolescent process. And that's the kind of thing we're talking about. In order to help a child or an early adolescent or a mid-adolescent or an emerging adult end up to be enter into mature Christian faith as a peer adult in the community, it takes an awareness and knowledge of what those processes are. And so that's the kind of stuff we're talking about. So let me show you a couple of quick things. First, by the way, for all of time in every culture, there were only two stages of life historically. You're either a child or you were an adult. A child was dependent on their family system. An adult was a peer in the community. Somehow, right around the age of puberty, which over time was always 14 to 15 years old historically around the world. Oops, and I drop things constantly when I say that. Um, and here's what happened, is sometimes there was a rite of passage or a ritual to mark you moving from child to adult, but most of the time there wasn't. Some people say, well, Jesus had a bar mitzvah. No, he didn't. The bar mitzvah was invented in the 15th century in Eastern Europe. You know why? They were losing their kids from their community. Their young people were pushing against the requirements and expectations of the adult community, so they created this rite of passage and this training ritual known as the bar and then later the bar mitzvah to, in order to help kids to realize they're part of something deeper than themselves. And that kind of happened up and through about, until about 1,000 A.D., 1,500, around the world. But in 900 to 1,000 A.D., all of a sudden popping into literature was this thing called adolescence, this holding pattern, this piece of living that didn't seem to still be a child but wasn't yet ready to be a peer. And so there's sermons and there's newspaper articles and there's all kind of arguments politically about what do we do with these people who are roughly 14 to 16 years old. And that went on up until about 1900 until finally we recognized we got a whole new stage of life we called adolescence. Well, here's what happened 
is right around 1900, we first noticed this. And ever since then, here's what's been happening. This has been shrinking, as you guys know. Average age of puberty has gotten younger and younger. This is, by the way, not the average age of male puberty because we know nothing about male puberty timing, either historically or now. Not, nothing. Two reasons guys lie, and guys don't want to talk about it. Even right now, keep the arms folded. I'm totally with you, Dave. <clears throat> it's like, move on. Let's tell you, pu puberty? Seriously? You're going to talk about puberty? I'm here to learn about kids. Don't talk about puberty. It's ridiculous. Well, it's perfect. That's exactly how guys think, and that's why nothing in our environment has anything to do with our puberty, including ourselves. We even lie to our friends and our moms, but they figure it out rather quickly. We won't go there, but if you're a mom of a 13-year-old and older, you know what I'm talking about. The rest of you will find out. Okay. What's interesting, though, is female puberty is related. We don't know exactly how the causal stuff works. Is related to its environment. So what we do know is that we know the age, on average, of women when they hit their first menses. For example, you go back 500 years ago, you can find letters, the exact date. 1,500 years ago, walls of caves, painted on the walls of caves. 7 million or 70 million, depending on how your, what your pastor actually believes about that. Uh, dinosaur footprint, were people actually there? I don't know if he's read science books or not. And Mary Lou, May 7th, B.C., 70 million years ago. Okay, uh, what's interesting about that is we, we know, we can we track it. And now we track it, and this thing's been getting younger and younger and younger. And you know what the medical community, some of you guys are in the medical community, huh? A few of you, I don't, you don't have to admit it. But my son-in-law is a third-year resident, and I love hammering him on his lack of education psychosocially in terms of social science, no, and the, in, the lack of interdisciplinary conversation between hard sciences, which is pejorative, and the soft sciences, which are really the important ones. I love that because he goes, it's hormones. I go, you're so, that's crazy, hormones. Okay, tell me this then. Why is it if you're second generation Asian in the West Coast, you are on average at about 12.3? How come if you're Latino and you're first or second generation and you're uh, in urban centers in the Southwest, it's about 11.2? That's more than a year span. That is not just which Taco Bell do you eat at. It doesn't matter if you go to Whole Foods or Safeway. It's not just hormones. And, yeah, there's something there, but our medical staff has been saying the same thing. If you're African-American urban poor, it's 11.4, roughly. But if you report a close relationship with your father, you are six months later on average than if you report an estranged relationship with your father. I don't know if you even know that. Solid stats, completely buried in culture. You know why? Because it matters. Girls that report a closer relationship to their dad, their bodies are making themselves prepared for sexual encounters at a later age, six months, is a massive number statistically. That's important. These are vital. And this thing's getting younger and younger. It's the average age of female puberty when all the boys and girls start asking questions, first intuitively, oh my gosh, I'm on my own on this tightrope, and who's there to help me move across it? Those of you dealing with fifth and sixth grade kids, how many of you working with fourth graders? Okay, fourth graders. You are in the absolute sweet spot of human development. Do you know that? There is nobody that's more cool to be around than fourth graders because this is the time when both boys and girls can sit in the front seat of a car and have a conversation. It's the only time that a male can, by the way. In fact, it's the pinnacle of male maturity for the rest of his life. It's fourth grade. You can have fourth grade boys and girls sit in a room and have an interesting conversation. Why? Because the brain, 
what we learned about the brain is from prenatal till about 11 years old takes in all this data and from 7 to 11 is attempting to make hard connections for very concrete application. And when we are concrete and we ask a question about what's right in front of them and we bring them into it, they can have an amazingly mature conversation in fourth grade. Have you noticed that? It's so cool. Don't leave them. Don't ever go to seventh grade. It'll kill you, okay? <laughs> you will not only lose this, this thing's going to go, it'll be gone too. Okay. Now, here's the, here's the interesting thing is, is the brain, once, once it starts uh, about 11 years old, here's what we know from 11 to 14, is that's when the brain goes, I'm sick of receiving data. I've got so much dang data in here. Stop it. It's called use it or lose it. The best researchers on this, the Mindfulness Institute out of UCLA, Daniel Siegel and his team, where they have actually put together these things. Their books, the last two books are great, Daniel Siegel. Um, where you, the use it or lose it is this. I have got to prune all of this stuff that I'm not going to use the rest of my life. So it's reinforced between 11 and 14 environmentally. This is stuff that matters, by the way, to you. What's reinforced environmentally from 11 to 14 is what they will carry into the rest of their adulthood. What is not reinforced at home, in other social settings, school, sports, church, video games, if it's not regularly enforced, it's gone. So you can teach them all the Bible lessons you want as a child. You can give them all the great curriculum as a child, but if it's not relationally, environmentally reinforced, it is going to be erased from their memory. And that is the exact opposite of what almost every children's ministry person says. That's the opposite of Christian, Christian education theory. But Christian education theorists for the last 40 years have been only reading each other and nobody else. If you ever look at those books and articles. What we do know is the environment is the most significant um, issue for human development as well as spiritual development than the content that is delivered in the midst of the environment. So those of you doing children's ministry and even early adolescence, middle school, as adolescence gets younger, it's about fifth, into fifth grade, sixth grade, is when all the boys and girls begin to go, I can no longer just be dependent on my family system. There's a bigger world that I'm called to be in, and it's the average age of those girls. So here it's probably about 11 and a half-ish, average age female first menses. So that's what, middle fifth grade into fifth grade kind of thing? So you, you probably notice a real shift somewhere around the end of fifth grade through the summer and the beginning of sixth grade of the boys and the girls, something happens where they move much more to a period of trying to figure out uh, how do I actually navigate all these expectations around me when I still have the brain of a child. And that's actually what we're learning here. See, how do you understand the 11 to 14-year-old? You have the body of an adult and the brain of a child. So those of you guys doing fifth grade through eighth grade ministry have to remember that you are basically dealing with third graders, developmentally, who are in the process of not wanting to take in one more talk that you work hard to prepare on the way to church. <laughs> they don't need any more data. They need an environment that reinforces the data they've already experienced. Does that make sense to you guys? It's who you are in children's ministry. It's how you relate to each other and to kids in front of you. It's what parents are like when they're driving them to and from things. It's how teachers look them in the eye and bless them just by an ethos of support and encouragement. 
And once they hit about 11, fifth grade, and they move through eighth grade, they're in the process simply of trying to scramble and figure out what do I keep and what do I not keep? Who can I trust? Where can I go? But they do not have the developmental ability to reflect on it. Now, here's one more thing you need to know. But for, for those of you that are working with anybody who's roughly 10 to 15 years old, here's something you need to know, too. This is when males and females are at their most different in the human development. Now, some of you may go, well, men and different are really... One of my best friends was the top cancer doc in Seattle, University of Washington, created all kinds of systems, used internationally. He's a brilliant guy, great guy, loves the Lord, been retired three years, and he loves to argue this. Men are different. God created us because of all the testosterone. I go, awesome. Let's go to the Bible. Okay, let's look at how men are different in the Bible. What does the Bible tell us about how men, are, men disciples are supposed to be totally different than women disciples? Well, men are supposed to be the leaders, the aggressors, the protector providers. I go, awesome, where? This is when he hates dealing with a theologian. It's not very fun to play Bible bingo with somebody that gets a paycheck from a seminary, okay? And then you're, all of a sudden you realize and you go, oh, fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Oh, good, that's good. First uh, Peter 3.15, gentleness and respect. Oh, awesome, Colossians 3.12. Um, be compassionate and kind and tender. Wow, those all sound like there's a bunch of feminine characteristics. Yep, they're the descriptors of a disciple who is an adult. So it's interesting. This is a little bit of an aside, but it's really important. See, men, you are needed by both boys and girls to see the fruit of the Spirit lived out via a testosterone-driven body and a testosterone-driven culture why you exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, which is primarily what we call feminist characteristics. How you like that one? How you like being a Christian as a guy? You gotta let yourself pursue gentleness and tenderness and kindness and respect and patience. Interesting. See, theologically and psychosocially, Males and females are, are very similar in how they begin to enter into adulthood maturity. From about 14 or 15, when the brain shifts from concrete to abstract, that's when the social environment creates what we end up grabbing onto to develop ourselves into adults. And that is not so different between guys and women. We need each other to teach each other and those characteristics are not limited to gender. But here's what you need to know if you ever work with a 10 to 15-year-old is boys and girls are at their most different during this period. Here's why. When you're going through use it or lose it, here's what's really fun, is that uh, girls have the, God's designed women this way, and I don't really know how, and nobody really understands the process, but women, their synapses as they're kind of connecting all the different bits of data in the use it or lose it period, they're asking one question. Uh, do you like me? Do you support me? Will you be, make me safe? But they're doing it in a way where they're reading cues at the speed of a Japanese bullet train. The most, this is Carol Gilligan and Nancy Trotter out of Harvard. They say this. 11 to 15-year-old female is the most relationally intuitive human on the planet. Relationally intuitive. So guys, if, you've ever had, if you have a daughter... When they're in fourth grade, they'll dress up in the chief stuff. They'll know who Alex Smith is. They'll wonder if, if, if Kelsey really fumbled. 
I love being contextual with you guys. If you don't all get that, then I'm really ticked at this church. I'm just saying. So one place in the country I can come and people actually get it. Thanks. And you know, you laugh with such gusto, I barely caught it. That's what's amazing. Um, but the relation to it, when your daughter is in fourth grade, she is just receiving data, and you are, you are a you know, really important figure, and she can be your best buddy, and she wears the chief's outfit. She understands them. My daughter knew all the RA, um, ERAs, uh, the Rockies picture, pictures when she was in second and third grade because we shared season tickets for the Rockies with three other friends. And so we go a lot. We had great tickets, and Katie loved to go. And the cameraman there used to love Katie, and Galarraga used to throw her the ball. He was a baseball player back then. I know you guys only know baseball for the last six months. This was a long time ago. Um, I'm an actual Kansas City baseball fan, so I have been a Charlie O. A's fan for a long time. So that's how old I am. Welcome. Anyway, uh, Katie knew the ERAs, man. We were Rockies fans more than the boys. They were older. But she knew our ERAs. She understood batting average. She knew, she knew strategy. This is second, third grade. Okay, then she had sixth grade. And I'm sitting there watching a game. We, we were in California at this time. We'd moved back. And I'm watching a game, and Katie walks in. And she sits down. Hi, Daddy. And I'm watching a Chief game, you know, direct TV. What a gift to those of us exiles in Babylon, all right? <laughs> And so, I, you know, I'm watching the Chief game, and I had trained her. The boys were already long gone Bronco fans because they had met Elway. And, and, and Katie was a Chief fan in fourth grade, fifth grade. She sits next to me. I'm watching the game. And not three seconds later, she goes, fine, and gets up, walks out, and starts texting her friends. My dad's such a jerk. It's like, what happened? What happened is, within three seconds, she had decided that I was not paying enough attention to her, and she had completely shut me out, and goes to the room and cries and calls all her friends. And then about, and I'm, luckily, it was a good game, and I, you know, I, oh, I did the stupid dad thing. And 15 minutes later, she was absolutely fine, bubbly, great, running through the house. But here's what it's like, they have these huge relational antennas. 10 to 15-year-old girls, and their minds are moving speed of a Japanese bull train, zoom, and they're looking for cues. They're kind of like his antenna. Oh, do you like me? Do you like me? Do you approve of me? Do you think I'm great? And anytime they think you're not, they get all freaked out. So you go in front to a middle school. You drive in front when they get out of school, and you'll see girls walking out of the middle school in these clumps. They're wrapping their antenna around each other. And when you're working with them, they, they just have each other, and then they have one person, usually the shortest, that is looking out at everybody else, and she's the one that tells them, we don't like them, do we? No! And that's, see, bullying in middle school with girls is not bullying. It's expressing communal safety with those they grab onto. They're not meaning to hurt them. Bullying is not really bullying up until 14 or 15. And then after that, it's really assault. So the whole concept of bullying is so much more complicated psychosocially and even in your ministry because they just are trying to figure out, my brain's moving so fast and I'm reading social cues and I just got to find a place where I'm safe. So those girls just need to find a place they're safe. And guys, you can never win. You know, you, you, do you guys do middle school in this room? You do in here? Okay, so if one of the guys goes out and there's a group of girls outside and saying, Here's what you think you say. Ladies, hey, here we go. Come on. We're going to start. Okay, well, this is great. Awesome. Come on in. You think that's what you said. And then all these girls all of a sudden run through the room, run out that door, go into the bathroom and text their parents to come pick them up, and they're yelling, they're crying, they're mad, and some woman leader's got to go, oh, I got it. 
And you walk in there and you're just saying, what a jerk he is. What, did, what happened? He said, you fat, ugly girls, you get in there. I'm so disappointed in you, I hate you. <laughs> so guys, here's what happens. Anytime you might even possibly get in front of this Japanese bullet train, go, uh, excuse me, any one of the women, could you just, would you go get those girls? I'll just kind of smile. Go, Love you. Hi. Love you. You're great. You're awesome. Great. Perfect. Way to go. Yay. And make a create safe space. Boys are also like they have antenna, but their brains move also at the speed of a train, but it's more like a, you know, the little engine that never should have tried in the first place. Think of Shrek in sixth grade. They got antenna. Girls, huge antenna. Reading social cues. You ever seen a 10 to 15 year old boy trying to read social cues? Antenna. That's why you go outside of middle school. Moms of middle school boys drive to school an hour before it gets out so they can be one of the first three slots right in front. And they have the door open and the window open and maybe snowing and blowing ice. Because you realize that if he comes out, he's not going to find you if you're not right in front. Is this true? Absolutely it's true. I'm a scientist. Thank you very much. But here's what they do. Then they come out one by one unless they know they got to go home with somebody that they kind of find on the way. And so they come out two by two, but they barely know each other's there. And they walk out with 80-pound backpacks going. <laughs> you know why they have 80-pound backpacks? Because they know they have homework, but they have no idea what it's in. <laughs> right? You are a mom of a middle school boy. I love this. But this is, you guys need to all understand this because when you say things like, give your life to Jesus. Jesus, is he that baseball player that we got from Dominican Republic? I don't, geez. Okay, and here's why they're 80-pound backpacks. Since they pull every single book out of their locker, and any other locker that's open, they pull those books out because they think, I guess, that's for me. And then they get in your car, right? And they come in out, and you yell, Harvey! And he, okay, and he finally gets, throws the backpack, gets in the car. How was your day? Where's your shoe? And he says, a shoe? Did, did I have two when I went to school? Oh, I don't know. Oh, I forgot my backpack. And he runs out in the backpack sitting right there. <laughs> you guys that are doing middle school ministry with boys need to realize they look like they don't, receive, they don't get anything. That they are clueless. That they are, their attention span is almost lasts a nanosecond at most. And then to try to give them a talk. You ever tried to lead a small group of middle school boys? Sixth grade through ninth grade to run a cabin time at camp? If it works, it means you got them so snowed that they're not actually reflecting because they can't. What they're doing is pressing A5 and then the eternal jukebox of all the messages they've heard their whole life. They're not trying to receive new data. They're trying to access data in order to survive the experience with you because that's all they're doing. They want to be safe. So a middle school leader, that, those guys simply want to be safe. This is why you go to camp, and you got five, seven guys at the table. They're having a great time. They're shooting grapes across the room so people can meet Jesus, you know, like they do in middle school. And they say, let's go play Ultimate Frisbee. Woo-hoo! So you all run out playing Ultimate Frisbee, and one kid you see is kind of going off by himself, going to the cabin. He's like this. And all the kids are leaving. You're going, yeah, I better check on him. So you go and check on him, and he's in the fetal position. So seventh grader, you know, fetal position. Billy, yeah, you okay? I don't know. You want to play frisbee golf? Yeah. Well, come on. Okay. And all of this, he grabs his stuff and he runs out. All he wanted to know is, you care. Those of you working with fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth grade kids, that is it. That is ministry. Period. End of story. They do not need more talks about the the 
the technicalities of the gospel message or Paul's injunctions regarding alcohol. They don't need more talks on content. They need more reminders of an environment where they are safe, known, and cared for, both boys and girls. Crucially important. Those of you dealing with second graders, third graders, fourth graders, they are beginning to experience the same kind of neediness, but they don't have the same reflective internal ability to recognize it. So you ask a group of, anybody work with kindergartners? Little kids? Oh, you guys do, obviously, vocationally you do. Okay, the little, the little ones, if you say to all the little ones, we're gonna, we're, it's a beautiful day, we're going to go outside and we're going to play a game. Do you guys do that? No, there's something about something else, but okay. Uh, but you ask preschoolers, fourth graders, four-year-olds, uh, we're going to go play a game. Grab the hand of a friend. You know what they do? They grab the hand of the kid right next to them because they know that anybody in that room is by definition their friend. And so they grab their hand and they get excited because they know and trust you because you're the adult and that still holds on roughly until third, fourth grade. It's in fifth grade they've begun to recognize there's some woundedness, some fear, there's some experiences I can't trust. And here's one more piece. is children in early adolescence, when they experience a traumatic situation, by the way, a traumatic situation is this. Anything a person, child or adult, receives as traumatic. It is traumatic to them. And what adults are terrible at is saying, it's not such a big deal. Get over it. The worst thing is you're being a crybaby. Why are you whining? The way we so rapidly use those excuses to keep kids in a box destroys them because here's what happened. Two things happen. Kids are not resilient. That literature is garbage. You probably have heard it. Kids, children are resilient. They get over stuff. William Damon, Stanford University, stood up at a major conference of a bunch of social scientists about 10 years ago, and somebody asked a question. This was at Fuller Seminary. Um, what about divorced kids with your research? He goes, two things he said. We know that divorce is episodic. Okay, first of all, any scholar that goes, we know, you write off what they say because no scholar in a scholarly meeting actually uses the words we know. What you say the research indicates or what we seem to think or what is pointing in this direction, but to be absolutely certain in a scholarly conference is totally out of bounds. We know that divorce is episodic. Here's what that means. It's an episode. Nobody believes that divorce is an episode. Divorce is an ongoing event that has consequences for generations. It doesn't mean it's the best of bad options. It doesn't mean we are pastoral. It doesn't mean we don't care in the process. But to pretend like it's just an event and it's done and it doesn't affect anybody is craziness. And Bill Damon's way too good a scholar. He heads the Stanford Research Center on Children and Adolescents. But then he says this, we know that kids are resilient and divorce is episodic. You know how we know kids are resilient? Because a PhD student goes and talks to 11 12, 13-year-olds who have fake limbs after an accident, and they do a little survey, and they do an interview and a focus group. How are you doing? You lost your arm. You lost your leg. And you go, how's it going? Oh, it's great. Look what I can do. I played Little League last year. Oh, I'm running track. And they go, kid is resilient. And that is literally the literature. They based on the self-report of the child as they grow up that they're able to rationalize and express their ability to make it an episode. But see, they don't have the brain capacity to do that. 
is not, they're not resilient. What they do is there's a piece of ice to talk about our soul, but it's actually a part of the brain we know now that when there's a traumatic event or experience, you store it in that part of your brain and you hold it there until you're ready to actually deal with it. And when we say kids are resilient, just get over it. It's not that big a deal. They're told that what they feel is something they're not supposed to feel. And, and yet it drips and it bites them when they're in college or as an adult or when they try to be married or when they try to have a friendship or they have a job. And it may not hit them until they're 55 years old and they're completely dissatisfied in marriage and their job, but they have a great job and a great marriage. But they're completely lost and alone and disconnected and have no idea why. It's because they've been holding on to multiple traumatic events and experiences that translate into what's called shame. Shame is different than guilt. Guilt is when I have done something bad, something wrong, and I need to fix that behavior. I need to ask forgiveness. I need to repent of that. That's guilt. That's repairable. Shame is not. Shame is not I did something bad. Shame is I am bad. And that's what trauma does. Trauma tells you that you deserve the message that you are unworthy. And children are not resilient. They are repositories of shame. And yet in the Christian community, in children's ministry and youth ministry for the last 40 years, our primary mode of discipleship is shaming and manipulation and coercion. We use the word challenge, which is verbal pointing. I've got it together. You don't. I challenge you to live up to this behavior, which by implication, when you don't, we teach them to lie and to hold it in as shame. Even when we think we're going, let's just memorize a part of the Bible. And here's the problem with that, is if I'm a kid, and I'm, a, I'm in uh, third and fourth, fifth grade Sunday school, whatever, and I'm being a typical boy that some medical professionals decided Ritalin's a great way to anesthetize their normalness. 90% of Ritalin is, is prescribed for males to avoid them being actual males. Okay, that's what happens, is that boys are supposed to fall off the walls and jump into stuff. And that's just not what they're allowed to do. The middle school is designed to destroy males, by the way. It's, it's the worst, stupidest thing developmentally for a kid. Now, here's the deal. But see, if that little boy who's acting out and being mean and awful and pinching people and lighting things on fire, and, but he's the pastor's kid, so you let him do it for a while, and bless you, and not because you sneeze, because you came. Bless you. Hallelujah. Glory. Glory. Send in your money. Okay. <clears throat> For 30 bucks, I'll give you this. Yes? Uh, resilience is simply the developmental inability or unwillingness. It's inability as a child. It's unwillingness as a, as a after 15. It's unwillingness. It's inability before 15 to actually understand, reflect on, and deal with that trauma. So it looks like resilience. And they will report they're resilient even when they're 30 years old of a traumatic event when they were seven, an accident that killed their dad. And they'll say, I've gotten over it, here's how I've gotten over it. But the difference between being defensive and hiding and pretending I'm resilient and actually working through the trauma of losing my father, that's the difference. Shame is, a, is an aspect of, our, of, of the 
definition of a, an expression or um, the, the meaning attached to a given event or experience that where the kid receives it is their fault. No, it's, 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 it's usually because they're just simply holding it inside and it's painful and so they feel guilty about it. They feel bad about it. So there's not a one of us here that doesn't feel some of that. Yeah. Now, even when it's processed, the residue's there, but it can become a scar, can become a beauty mark, sort of. But when it's unprocessed, when we don't have the ability to process it, we haven't done the hard work to process it, we store it as shame. Now, here's the problem, is if the kid, if Johnny, you go, you get mad at Johnny, you say, Jesus really loves you guys, you're fourth and fifth graders, and you're wonderful, and Jesus loves you. See, he loved this leper that he's going to, Johnny, just be a little quiet, would you just please stop it? Okay. Jesus really loves everybody, he loves even this leper who they brought down, and he needed his sins forgiven. Johnny, please knock it off, okay, we're going to get to you. Jesus loves those people that really couldn't help. Johnny, stop it, get out of here. Somebody take Johnny out, you got a timeout. And Jesus really loves you guys. Okay, here's what a child hears. Jesus hates Johnny. Jesus is mad at Johnny. Johnny's a bad kid. And when you're a child or an early adolescent, you put yourself in Johnny's place. So when a kid experiences trauma, any kid around that experience also experiences the trauma as well. And they hold it as if they were part of the issue themselves. Now, you, don't even, you will not see this on kids. It's something that they store inside. It's just the nature of how they are collectively as children in early adolescence. Mostly what I'm trying to help you see is our job is to be gentle and tender and careful and create an environment where kids are absolutely safe and loved by the community. That's the job of children's ministry and early adolescent ministry. Make sense? You with me? Now, here's what's interesting. Right here is when the brain begins to shift, and all of a sudden, development is sociologically related. It's about the environment. And your brain starts to move from first person to third person way of thinking. Think of a video game you're seeing through the, through the uh, face mask of a, of a quarterback that's first person. That's concrete thinking of a child and an early adolescent. Then you, you hit about 14 or 15, and your brain begins to move into abstraction where we're connecting all the different synapses, and you move almost to a third-person video game experience of the whole playing field. And what happens is it used to be very quick process. 100 years ago, almost for sure, the brain would begin to shift from concrete to abstract. Puberty was about 14 to 15 years old. And then at about 16, 17, you were already fully developed in your brain capacity because abstraction wasn't anywhere near as complex 100 years ago, 300 years ago, 1,000 years ago as it is today. The more complex life has gotten, the more difficult it has gotten in order to move into adulthood and to realize how I insert myself into adulthood. How do I individuate? So that's why lengthened adolescence has occurred. And here's what we got. We got this is called... Early adolescence, which means I have the body of an adult and the body of an adult and the brain of a child. Then I shift into abstraction. The first part of my brain to actually develop as the abstraction is the left brain stuff, the logical stuff, the ability to solve a math problem, the ability to create a system. They are, they are great on church committees when they're 15 years old because their brain is so left brain and so disconnected from the Spirit of God. They can be great on a church board. It's meant to be sort of humorous, but let's just see how that goes. That's what happens. Is it's, it's what Alison Gopnik says, a brain researcher. She goes, 
the 14 or 20-year-old mid-adolescent, she didn't use the word mid-adolescent, but that's what social scientists call it. It's like giving a kid a car when you're 14 and saying, here's an accelerator. This thing can go 120 miles an hour, but there's no brake and no steering wheel. So that's what a 14 to 20-year-old is. Their brain is the brain that has an accelerator and no brake and no steering wheel. And we go, have a great time, kid, but be responsible. All responsibility means to me is going, ah, step on it, baby, because this is so fun. Now, oh, oops, there's a tree there. I didn't know there's a tree there. Why didn't you tell me there's a tree there? What happens is, is this thing has gotten so long that scholars in the mid-2000s, right around 2000, 1995, we, we recognize that this stage of life, uh, roughly 20 until you end up into adulthood, is emerging adulthood. It takes longer. It's late adolescence. This is called mid-adolescence. Here is very concrete. This is abstraction that's adult-like, but you haven't accepted responsibility yet. You, are kind of, you now have a brake and a steering wheel, but you're not sure you want to use them. All right? Any of you know 23-year-olds? Okay. Uh, and this is called mid-adolescence. Concrete, abstract, what's mid-adolescence? This is for you to do high school ministry and who work with 19 and 20-year-olds, okay? Roughly first two years out of high school. Egocentric abstraction. Here's what it means. I am aware that I impact others by my behavior and attitudes, but I don't care. You ever known a high school kid? Think about this one. I'm aware. I have the ability to recognize that if I say something, if I wear something, if I do something, it's going to tick people off. But you, you know what? I am so busy worrying about my own survival, I do not care what they think. Well, this is why adults hate kids. If you read any of the stuff in newspapers, on TV, on 60 Minutes, on anything, uh, what they, uh, Time Magazine, what they talk about is this generation that's a generation of, ready for this, narcissists. You ever seen the book? The Narcissist Generation. A generation of egocentric kids. Look what we've created. They're all consumers. They're all self-centered. Yes, they are. But the reason they're self-centered is not because they're egocentric by nature. It's not just because they're consumers and entitled. Those are byproducts. The problem is they're consumers and entitled for a substitute of what they long for the most, which is adult presence in their life. The lack of adult presence in their life has caused them to become consumers of anything that will feed them, which is what technology is about. It's what sexuality is to a mid-adolescent. It's not about sex. You just tell kids, why wait? Just stop having sex. Don't do internet pornography. Beat your head against the wall because it will make zero difference because it's not about sexuality. It's not about choice. It's about longing. A mid-adolescent is egocentric, egocentrically abstract. They are about survival because they have no idea who they are. They have no idea what kind of voice they have. They're, they're a long way from being welcomed into the adult community, and yet their job is to conform to everybody's agenda right in front of them. School, sports, music, dance, drama, and by the way, church. So in high school ministry and even college ministry, and we have interns, when do we actually communicate with them and look them in the eye? When they screw up. When they show up, but in fact, there's four S's. If, I, if we had just all the high school people, how many of you just do high school? Okay, there's a few of you. If you had all the high school people together, and I asked you to evaluate your ministry, to share with each other how it was, how it's gone the last year, and you share, well, okay, share, okay. Here's what you come up with. You come up with a rubric of evaluation that's the four S's. 
If there are five, one of them would be dirty, so I'm just going to do four, okay? First S, do kids show up? If they show up, we're effective. Yay, they're coming. What's the numbers? Who's coming? Yay. Secondly, do they sit down? In other words, when we start the program, do they sit down? I mean, do you, do you guys actually have kids in this room to do ministry? You do? And so they sit in, are these rows set up for the youth ministry? Chairs in rows, though. No? Let's argue. We're going to go back and vote on it. You'd be, I'll make you a Presbyterian. We'll have committees. We'll do assignments. We'll vote on it. Um, but it, it is, it's perfect because it's good to keep kids in rows because you can control kids in rows. You control the environment, and you keep them from actually expressing anything that's outside of your control. We call that youth ministry. See, I told you I'd throw a few hand grenades out here. Just Here's the problem. If they show up, if they sit down, what's sit down mean? It's when we start our program, when we start the video, when we do the music, bam, they're ready. They go. They do what they're supposed to do. Thirdly, do they shut up? When we talk, do they, are they quiet? When we do our programming, are they with it? Are they in, involved in it? Do they do what we want them to do? And lastly, do they smile when they walk out? Do they show up? Do they sit down? Do they shut up? Do they smile? And that's what you would describe effective youth or college ministry because they prove that they show up and they like it and they're engaged in your agenda. So when 25 normally come and 15 come that night, what comes out of our mouth, and I've done this dozens if not hundreds of times, where is everybody? Haven't seen John for a while. Oh, I'll text him. Think about that. John, I'm going to text you because you haven't shown up and smiled in a couple of weeks and really worried about your lack of participation in my agenda. And I feel better about myself when I know our small group likes what we're doing. So when you're not showing up, I feel worse about me. So it's really important that you feed my need for you to like this thing. So I'm going to text you now. Now, I know none of you say, that's not what I'm doing in youth ministry. I know it's not what you're intending to do in youth ministry. But that's what happens in the mind of an egocentric, self-protected, absolutely on-the-run mid-adolescent, is everybody's got an agenda. Everybody's got a desire for me to do something and to be something. So all of this, what do we do? I don't know. Let's close in prayer. It's been really great. Why has it happened? I've already talked about it. It's called the lack of what's called social capital. Robert Putnam made this well-known through a book called Bowling Alone. He's a Harvard sociologist. He didn't invent the term. It's the idea that people care about me without an agenda, without a reason. The best thing you got going for you is being volunteers, those of you that are volunteers. Paid staff's job is to do what the Bible says, to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. Okay? Paid staff's job is to encourage volunteers because volunteers care when you don't have to. And a kid can't figure that out. A child, a second grader, they don't have the ability to do it anyway. But a sixth grader, you're going to be nice to me? Awesome. And ninth grader, why do you like me? They'll never say it, but they'll wonder. It's the loss of social capital, the loss of adults who are meaningful in the lives of kids, who know their story, who look them in the eye. And that's the basic reason what's happened. For a lot of reasons, we've become more and more fragmented as a society and this affected the church. We use the rhetoric of of a community, but really, you, there's so much evidence out there that that community stuff is, is really a whole bunch of individuals bumping into each other. We grab those that we want to be with and we like, and we create our little systems to self-protect as adults. 
And yet, what people are starting to use is a new term, not fragmented society. Here's the world the kids are growing up in. is what's called an atomized society. David Brooks and others are using words like this. You can Google it and see that people are writing about atomization. Basically, atomization is this. We have become a collection of, individ of, of corporate individualism in the church. A collection of corporate individualism in the church. We worship together. We sing together. We listen together. We write checks together. We do ministry together. But ultimately, how together are we? And here's the problem. For a kid growing up, without social capital, they can't become an adult without people who are invested in them. In a world of atomizations, whether or not you believe in climate change politically, whether you're part of the 2% of scientists who don't believe in climate change or 60% of the U.S. Senate, that's an interesting comparison of statistics, but it's a whole other conversation. Uh, sociological climate change in terms of atomization is not up for grabs. Americans are the loneliest society on earth. If you look at statistically, the number one World Health Organization problem in developed countries is depression of children and adolescents. And depression is directly related to isolationism. They're alone. So what this means in the next three and a half minutes, I'm watching the clock now, Chris, I got it, is I'm, I want to show the video. Sure, I'm going to show this video anyway. That'll be a good way to finish this. Let me give you an example of what's happened and what you got to avoid, and then I'll wrap up with a comment or two. This is the first Little League team, 1938. He's got the bat. She's got the ball. They're very happy. To let that little boy wear a dress. They're very progressive back then. <laughs> first Little League team, in order to teach kids to enjoy the great sport of baseball known as our national pastime, rhetoric of our story, right? Um, notice, there's a lot of things to notice here, but here's the one thing I want you to notice. There's no adult in the picture. No adult is getting any credit for being the coach of this team because he doesn't matter. That's an adult's job is to care for kids and to nurture them into adulthood. That's what we are called to do as people for all of time. Every adult knew this. Every society knew this. Uh, these kids, that's my legacy. It's not money. It's not ideas. It's not books. I've written a bunch of books. If you haven't been part of my family, you've never bought any. A whole different issue. But you don't even care if you're part of my family. I go, I'm keeping every book I've ever written for you guys. They go, awesome. I go, well, how are you going to divide them up? And they look at me and go, seriously, Dad? Really? Nonetheless, I want to go in heaven and look in the Betamax room for the uh, first guy that decided he's going to be in the picture for the Little League team. I want to I meet that first guy. I doubt he's in heaven. Well, maybe. You know, he might have been a... Methodist, who knows? But <clears throat> then he goes, it's important for me to be in the picture because I am, you know, I'm the coach. Where are we now with Little League? Take a look at this real quick. Keep your eye on the ball, Brandon. Come on, big fella. Base it. Here we go now. Oh, that's a base hit. Nice job, Brandon. Nice job. Way to go, Brandon. Mike must be so proud of your son. He's having a great season. Oh, thanks, Kathy. But hey, hey, your son Jason, he's got a great arm. He's going to be on the, we'll see him at Dodger Stadium soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Mike, I mean, Brandon is really stinging the ball this summer. Well, if his math scores were as high as his batting average, mm -hmm. I'd have a straight-A student. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Brandon, you don't want to get picked off. Get on the bag. You know, I haven't seen Heidi in a while. Will you make sure to say hello for me? I certainly will. Thanks. She's actually real busy with her career. Shopping. <laughs> I think my wife's in the same line of work. Oh. 
Brandon. Get on the bag. So, Kathy, how's uh, the art gallery going? Pretty well, actually. We just started carrying this terrific sculptor from Costa Mesa. Oh. Get on the bag. Yeah, he works in iron and marble. Oh, wow. That sounds interesting. I, I love art myself. Get on the bag! <laughs> um, well, we're having an exhibit this Wednesday. You should all pop by. Oh, okay. You know, my wife and I went to the L.A. County Museum of Art and saw the Van Gogh retrospective. Mm. Brandon! Get on the damn bag! His, uh, his early sketch work is, is really appealing. Hey, Brandon, uh, maybe you should listen to your dad and stay close to first base, partner. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, what I always tell my son Nathan, uh, just go out there and try to have fun, you know. Well, you know, having fun is the name of the game. Hey, son, you trying to make an ass of me? Oh. Get on the back! Okay, that's plenty, that's plenty. I think that... Uh, if you're offended by those two swear words, I'm sorry, but that means one of two things. You've never been to a Little League game or a church board meeting. These would be the two things where you've missed. Um, but one example, where we have our agendas, we have what we're setting out to do, we have our teaching plan, we have all the things that we want to accomplish, and so we encourage kids to jump inside the box of what we want to accomplish. But what they're longing for is the presence of God's people who are inviting them into the community of faith. And as children and early adolescent, it's the environment that makes the biggest difference. Excuse me, coffee. And for a mid-adolescent, a high school kid, more kids drop out between ninth grade and 11th grade than they drop out of the church after 12th. The Sticky Faith Studies studied kids who were involved in the church and left after two years of college. But far more kids drop out between ninth grade and 11th grade. And we say, you know why we, what, what excuse we give is the reason? What's the reason they drop out? They're busy, absolutely. Those kids are busy. And so therefore, they choose not to come to church. But they choose to go to parties. They choose to play video games. They choose to hang with their friends. They choose to play sports. They choose to do Habitat for Humanity. They choose to do a lot of things. It's not busyness. It's they realize this is the one place in their life where they don't matter. When the brain shifts and they have abstract abilities, they realize, for me to become an adult, I need to be seen as an agent. I need to be treated as a player. I need to be a participant with the adult community. They got to hand me a steering wheel and a brake way before I enter college. I need to be told now that I matter. I need to be included and drawn into the family. The scriptures uses the word we are the family of God in the Old and New Testament more than any other metaphor describing who we are. Paul uses the term adoption in Romans to talk about uh, how Israel became the children of God. This unique, beautiful, intimate relationship. He uses four times the word adoption for the Gentiles being drawn into the community of faith. We have atomized our kids. High school and college and young adult ministry is about this. Our job is to participate with God's adoptive process where these kids are part of us. That's your role. Teaching is in service of that. Small groups is in service of that. Our goal is not to adopt kids as the adults in charge and powerful. We are co-siblings with these kids. And therefore, we do one of two things. Like a big brother or sister, our job is to make sure their voice is heard that they have a place to participate, that they have a home to go to. So when they get to the junior and senior year, they go, I can't leave that place. That's my family. I belong to them. They need me. They suck without me. 
And also, like a big brother or sister, we're also handing them a steering wheel and a brake so they can begin to recognize how to grow into adulthood. Our job is to both nurture and protect, but to invite them to participate as we, had, we participate in God's adoptive process into the body of Christ. That's what you do. Children's ministry, middle school ministry, what you do is you're participating in God's preparing them for adoption. And here's, a, here's another issue. It relates not only to discipleship, and then I'm done. Discipleship, but also evangelism. Because this is a wild thing. We, we mostly focus on the people that are children of God or those who have accepted Christ until we go to Matthew 25. When Matthew 25, Jesus talks about sheep and goats. I was hungry. You fed me. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I needed clothes, and you gave me clothes. I was in prison, and you visited me. It does not say I was in prison and innocent. How come Christians have aligned with political ideology that blames those who are, quote, not innocent? How has that possibly happened? Who is not innocent on the face of the earth? We all deserve everything we get and far more, according to the gospel. We may not believe that, but then we got a whole other issue we got to deal with. If we truly believe the gospel then we believe even those in prison are worthy of our care. And then Jesus in verse 25, when they say, when did we see you? Whenever you did for the least of these, my brothers and sisters, siblings. The white church would not have a problem with the black church in the U.S. right now if every white Christian saw Michael Brown and Michael Brown's mom as a sibling as well as the officer that shot him. They're our sibling as well. That's family business because they're part of God's family according to Matthew 25, 40. Kids do not believe they belong to anybody. They not only belong to us, they're family. That's youth ministry. That's children's ministry. We need to convince the whole body of these four or five churches, campuses, is that what the Bible calls them? That's a little theologian throwing in a little dig there, but another issue. These four or five groups of people that call themselves one, love that. Where we begin to treat each other regardless of age and status and class and ethnicity as members of the same family, but as siblings together with God as our father. And we as brothers and sisters holding on to one another and then inviting others to be adopted by the father. That's what we do. Everything else you do is simply icing on the cake. I'm done. What are we going to do now? Thanks for letting me yap. Appreciate it.